Hi, this is Rosa, the editor. I just wanted to jump in quickly before we start and say that this episode, there is talk about racist language that some people might not be up for. For me growing up in Bristol, it didn't matter where they moved me. I'm always coming back to Eastern Staples. But I go to school, I ran away. Where did I run away to? I come and sit on the streets of St. Paul's. Go and send me another place. I'm running back to St. Paul's. Yeah, I wanted to be around where I could see reflection of self. So it doesn't matter what I did this, where am I going to go to to be around self? I'm Neil Maggs, and this is Bristol Unpacked speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. This episode's guest is Lawrence Hu, a poet and educator based in Bristol. His work is best known for throwing a powerful light onto the overlooked experiences of those living in Bristol's under-supported communities. We're talking to him about decolonising the classroom, policing and crime, and what did he think of the name change of the Colston Hall to the Bristol Beacon? Hey Lawrence. How are you doing, Neil? I'm good, how are you? Yeah, I'm very good, thank you. I, I want to um, talk to you about a few things. You're obviously known for your poetry your films, your content creation, you do lots of different things and you're known for having quite strong opinions about lots of different things. So I want to kind of talk a bit about you, but also your role and your views on the decolonisation of education and the arts. I want to talk to you a bit about crime and justice. You were recently on the front page of Bristol Post a few days ago talking about that and a bit about the community and community empowerment. But let's talk a bit about you and your upbringing because your early days in the city, you were quite nomadic, weren't you? Yeah, growing up, moved around a few places in the city. I was in social care, went to six secondary schools. The schools placed me in a lot of different communities. My first secondary school was St. George Park. Then I was at Vinnie Green Assessment Centre for a few months. And from there, I was sent to a children's home in Wibbywood. And Wibbywood school down with my next school for the next few years. Then from Wibbywood, I came back out and then it was Whitfield for a short period of time. I got moved from Whitfield. I went to Filton High. Then from Filton High, I went to Ashton Park. So, yeah. Well, why did you move around so much, Lawrence? Uh, so some of it's down to my behaviour. Some of it is down to being placed into care. Um, something I didn't understand at the time is that every time I got sent to a new school or was moved to a new place, I was always told I was getting a fresh start. Yeah. But I later found out, especially when it was brought up in um, one of my lessons, was that a file would always go to the school before me. So even though I think I'd be getting a fresh start in the space, they always had a preconception of who they were going to deal with. So my interactions were always, I just thought it was kind of primed. And then in one lesson, I remember at Whitfield before I got moved from there. And I was told when I went there, everything I was told was in confidentiality, nobody would know. And I was introduced to the head. I was in one lesson, and I must have been speaking or something. I remember the teacher. Just shouting out in the class, you know, you need to watch yourself because you'll get sent straight back into care. And just bring that out full into the class. In front of everyone. In front of everybody. And this was meant to be confidential. So I didn't understand. So I threw the table at her. 
you know what I mean? So I was just angry. I was like, hang on, you just exposed this to all, all these people. You know it, everybody knows it. The next thing you know, you're in another school. If you move around a lot, that can be a bit disruptive or kind of can be a bit unsettling. You know, we know each other relatively well. I, I, I see you as, in some ways, as you, you know a lot of people, but you're a bit of a lone wolf. Would that be accurate? Yeah, pretty much. A lot of my young life moving around, you know that you can rely on yourself, right? especially once you've been put in a children's home a few times. You're removed from your family and everybody. And as a young mind, you believe if anybody does actually care for you, then you wouldn't be in the place you are. So you learn to rely on yourself. So that shaped you, those early experiences kind of shaped who you are now. Yeah. Yeah, I don't yeah. really look for anything from anybody. Sure. Uh, but at the same time, I don't really expect it. Yeah. That kind of ability to walk alone, but also to connect to different groups and different communities in the city. Because, I mean, you've got friends, you know, inner city. A lot of work you're known for doing is, is your, you know, your well-known inner city tales, which is obviously based around kind of St. Paul's East and that kind of area. But you spent time south of the river and you know a few people over that way as well so you kind of you're able to cross that crossing the river in bristol and connecting is quite a tough thing i think not many people can do that i think yeah there's slightly different culture differences over there but the economics pretty much of how we live are the same and yeah i got i got a load of good friends over in south bristol right but, but I, there's a flip to it like i can remember when i first went to Whibby with school on my first day, it seemed a bit a bit peculiar in the interaction, but it was all right. And the very next day, when I wasn't taking around the school, the thing, the first moment I stepped onto the schoolyard, I can remember the first word I heard was nigger. Where, where, where is it? That was at Whibbywood. When I okay. Was, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. But that was it. The first person said that. I can remember that. And I remember I whacked that individual. I can remember the whole playground jumped on top of me yeah. on that day. But I think they weren't used to... It's just different, isn't it? It's people not knowing um, right, what they are known or tackling what they don't know. So I had quite a lot of that experience in South Bristol, but that's usually from older people. But at the same time, I made some really good friends over there. Yeah. The work that you've done has always been hard-hitting. What motivates you to want to tell those really kind of gritty stories, whether that's through poems or film or art installations? I think it's just because it's, it's all the stuff that impacts on my life. I think that's where it comes from. And then not wanting it to have impact on my children's lives and other people's children's lives is to try to stop it continuing. So it's not like I'm going out looking for stuff. This stuff is, is there. And, and things have changed a lot in Bristol, haven't they, over the years? And today we've had the Colston Hall. The name has changed to Bristol Beacon. Presumably you welcome the fact that the name has changed? Yeah, the name's changed. The name's, the name's upset a lot of people. And I think the city's saying that it wants to try to bring the whole city together. I know changing the names upsetting other people, but the connotations of what the name stands for, what, yeah, it's a good day that the name has actually now changed. What about the South Bristol people, though, kind of your mates that side, who they feel, rightly or wrongly, there's this sort of liberal woke agenda that everything's kind of changing and you know they want to see the traditional kind of Bristol. I think it's down to a limited historical account for a lot of people of who people are and what people's actions are, as well as Colston's what actions are, as well as what African people's actions are through history. And there's just been so much misrepresentation that people need to be better informed. But even with the Colston Hall name and the name changing, I was never an advocate for the change in the beginning. For me, there was immediate issues in the city that needed to be addressed more than the name of the venue. 
I got that as it being a venue for arts and entertainment for people to be there in that setting, that people weren't happy to attend it. So, yeah, I, I agree with the ch- I agree with it changing its name because of what the venue is. What about the big fanfare, the whole having it live and the announcements, the embargo, all the press coming out? Did it feel a bit, little bit OTT for you or do you think it was a monumental moment? I don't know. It might be monumental if it happened a couple of decades ago when people were trying to push it against. It's like this year, we were, I think, even though the name change was in place a few years ago, like three years ago, I think they record, they put it forward then. And if people remember three years ago, you know, that's not long after the Black Lives Matter movement rose up first time round. Yeah, you know, which made people uncomfortable then. But then in those three years, nothing came along. Even when they said they're going to change the name or they're not, they're not going to be the Colston Hall anymore. It's now the largest letters outside saying Colston Hall. And those yeah. letters were on the building up until the statue fell. Sure. On the actual Colston Hall itself, and obviously there's clearly today there was quite a lot of political will behind that. You had a speech from the Mayor, Martin Reese. It was kind of shared by the council and a lot of the big establishments in the city. And the, the Colson Hall does receive quite a lot of direct funding from local authority and it's been seen as the big venue in, in the city. Somebody tweeted today, Colson Hall Beacon, Bristol Beacon, now that's sorted, can we start to talk about investment for spaces where communities engage in culture in their neighbourhoods? Example, Kumba, Hartcliffe, Philwood, Malcolm X Centre. Let's create this. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that tweet. I retweeted it. How much of the current refurbishment? Is it 40 million? It's a prestigious venue, this, but when you look at the wider communities in Bristol and you look at the facilities and resources they have and how they're supported by the city, well, it's abysmal. Bristol is an affluent city. It has some incredible industry and private business in here. Wealthy institutions. And they need to be, they have to be connected to the wider communities in Bristol and have that prosperity feed out to there but for decades it for decades it just hasn't happened and it doesn't seem even now it's not better now you don't think i don't know i'm not seeing it better in the communities that i'm in most of the time and it's like i don't want to get caught up in politics or anything like this but bristol's labor run and labor led yeah these communities that you've just mentioned they should be the ones getting the maximum attention right now shouldn't they i don't know that's why you have to look for what you can do for yourself I've seen what the system, for me personally, and this is my personal views, in the city's done. I don't believe in the system. I don't vote because I've seen whoever's been in places. Like I'm sat here looking at the cover where a picture's taken and it's got the Millpond Primary School in the background. And even the Somerset Police put a sign in front of the school sign that reads, Police warning, curb crawlers will be arrested. And underneath the sign that says, Police warning, curb crawlers will be arrested, is a prostitute being sold crack cocaine directly underneath the school sign as well. Now, this was allowed to happen in Easton under Bristol City Council and the Somerset Police's guys. So if they allow this to occur... If you don't vote, then some people would say that you forfeit your right to have an opinion. You can create a system within the system where you predominantly look out for yourselves more than looking for the system to look out for you. And I haven't seen that this system is meant to be looking out for us. When I, when I see people acting and making a difference, yeah, and they can make me believe in a party, then then that's the time when I choose to vote. Sure. But currently, and through my life of living in Bristol, I'd say towards the most deprived community all the way through until until the city chose to make a difference. But all those years it chose not to. So how am I going to believe in a system in the city that allowed that to happen to so many? 
And then people say, no, go and lock vote. It's going to change. But it never changed. It hasn't got better. Well, if it's getting better or not, let's move on to crime and justice. In, I think it was 2017, Safer Bristol did a study which confirmed and clarified Avon and Somerset police were institutionally racist. They've made it quite clear and come out, and I have Desmond Brown, head of the Land Review on the podcast a few weeks ago, talking about, you know, accepting that reality, but some of the changes that have been taking place and the positive initiatives that the police are, are trying to bring about. You were on the front page of the Bristol Post a couple of days ago, and the headline was, everyone in this community is terrified. You kind of came out all guns blazing and, and indicated that actually you don't feel that the police have clean their act up or have kind of moved forward in, in any way. When the police come into St. Paul's, they come in with 10, 15 vehicles, bulletproof vests, big guns, too heavy-handed, and that makes people fear fearful. So your experience, and as somebody who lives in that area, in that community, is the relationship and is the approach of the police no different than pre-2017 or even going further back than that, no different than during the St. Paul's riots? Do you, do you see any positive progression that they've made or not? Well, I kind of see that they've advanced in their sense of appeasement when situations occur. But you just need to look at the statistics to see that the policing hasn't changed. That environment created where certain crimes were allowed to flourish when it was contained in that space. Talking about St Paul's in the kind of these yeah. big sign-up where she came in off Lake Scroft on the city road is a no-go police zone. Yeah. Well, imagine if your address was in the middle of what you just explained. How do you think you would feel? If all the information you're being told about yourself is either the place you're in is violent, dangerous, and you compound that with a wider national thing of the view of black men, and it's being compounded even more because of how the institutions in Bristol operate, to give people a negative outlook on what their opportunities are in life. Compound that putting violence all around them. Yeah. So do I think the policing is any different? I think it's containment. It's like if you look at St Paul's map, it's being policed so that all those individuals that used to be able to come into St. Paul's can no longer do it. So so it's clear. You can't come into St. Paul's now and do the acts that people could go into St. Paul's for 20, 30 years and commit. But other parts of the city now are seeing that that is picking up in their areas. So it, 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 is, it, is it policing that's working or is one space just now being cleansed? But the thing is, the police are kind of at the end of the chain. Yeah. The issues are the economics of the community. Uh, the misreputation of education, especially for children of African and African Caribbean descent, and probably many other children from different cultures that have been educated for a Eurocentric, which is your mainstream British education. So the police are at the end. There's things that need to be addressed before that. But even the mindsets of so many people, like the fear of young black males in this country, yeah, you can, you can smell it. Where does that come from? Do you think? Well, I agree with you, I, I, and I see it myself. You know, I, I can't tell you where it comes from, but I can tell you that it is centuries old. Yeah. What yeah. do you think about a black person being a policeman? Do because I know some black people think this it's it's a no go. Others see it as sort of progress and greater representation. What's your personal view? I think if you believe you can join the police force, yeah, and uphold the law as it's written, yeah, whoever you are, then go and do it. But if you're going to join the police force and see failings and see injustice and not speak out against it, then you serve no purpose. Yeah. Would you have ever, ever considered joining or not? Join the police force. 
when you yeah in your early twenties. Uh, <laughs> I just have to go quiet. <laughs> that was never that it it would have never been a viable option. Yeah, I wouldn't mind it being a lawyer though. But you're able to hold successful prosecutions against institutions that are practicing racist behaviour, which is illegal. Yeah. And once that has been successfully done, I believe the change will be a lot quicker than trying to do it the other way around. Um, I'm going to play devil's advocate now because it is my job to do that as well. A lot of knife crime, we you know, is is young black boys on young black boys. Yeah. When we talk about institutional racism, we talk about uh, systemic racism, which is the kind of thing that lots of people talk about now. Does that remove personal responsibility? Some people would say, well, hang on a minute, I can, you know, everything's to blame on. Is is that not a kind of victimhood mentality to perpetuate to young people as if it, it resolves the, of any responsibility because they can say, I've grown up in this area, I didn't get this schooling, this is the natural outcome. Do you know what I mean? Let's deal with the first part of that issue then, yeah? Yeah. Is it legal to be racist? It's, it's illegal. So it's illegal, yeah? It's illegal. Yeah, isn't it, yeah. So is institutional racism illegal? I think it's I think it's hard to prove institutional racism. Hang on, let's go back. Yeah, go on. Is racism, is the racist behaviour illegal? Yeah, as a, as a hate crime. So if, you're a, if, so if you're an institution and you're saying you're racist, yeah. is that not illegal? Well, well, yeah, but it has to be proven, doesn't it? So if I think... I mean, like, I'm coming out telling you my institution is racist. Is that not admission of my guilt? If, oh, if the institution has admitted that they are, when you, then yes, yes. Okay. But what do you do? Arrest every police officer and put them in prison because they've admitted institutional racism? I don't know. There's got to be accountability somewhere, hasn't there? That's yeah. what I'm saying. If, if, if yeah. this is what it is and people are coming forward saying, you know, wow, this institution is just racist. What do you mean this institution is just racist? Yeah. That's, that's a, that is a, I, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. I yeah. believe just in the language. Isn't that a crime? Yeah. Like, like I walk down the room and just say, I'm just racist. Yeah. Don't worry about the it. The latest kickback as well, though, Lawrence, to that is the argument which is gathering more and more momentum. It seems to be from, from a lot of conversations I've had with people recently, seems to be cemented is that, you know, people talk about the police being institutionally racist. Now the, the kind of the, the argument is that every single institution is racist. Then everybody needs to be held to account. Every, yeah, every, every single institution in this country is founded on racism. And if every single institution is founded on racism, as you've just said, then technically that's illegal. And then it sh- they, should all, they should all be shut down, shouldn't they? I don't know. I mean, is I, I, my question I suppose is, how can you prove institutional racism in the post office or well, think, in Bristol Water? I think that's such a sweeping statement. Let's sit with the police. Yeah. Because they've been registering their data yeah. for decades. The figures are there through the criminal justice system. You can look at different... So this young male of a certain appearance lives in this neighbourhood. He's committed a crime and his charge is seven years. Then you see another individual over here and he might not even go to prison. But what I'm saying is, if you can look through the stats that have existed for decades... For sure. So how is nobody accountable for this? After the Stephen Lawrence inquiry, that's where the, the term kind of started in this country. And then, as you say, there is data to, to prove that that is the case in the police. But I, I guess m- my point was when the argument is that every institution is institutionally racist, then that's quite a catch-all thing. And, and I'm like, how, how, do you, how do you prove that? I just think that's a, I'm going to try and get out of jail free statement. Like, I'm going, hang on, someone's looking at me. Let me try and pull everybody else in the world into this discussion a minute. No, let's just do what we're talking about. Okay. Okay. We're talking so, about the police. 
that can let the police off the hook because they can go, oh, hang on a minute, it's not just us. Look, it's the, it's, it's the, it's, um, we're yeah. seeing every institution killing innocent black people on the telly, aren't we? Yeah. Or are we seeing the police? Killing innocent black people on the telly. Let's keep the let's keep the conversation where it needs to be. So, so is it losing its focus then? And, 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 and people are trying to pull it out of where it is, isn't it? Yeah. Let's keep where it is. This is about the police, isn't it? Yeah, this is about the police. This is about a global. This is about a global campaign that, for the first time, mm-hmm. has picked up a lot of momentum with people from outside the actual direct culture. It is attacking. Yeah. That's what's frightening everybody. Yeah, because this time you go out and you look into who sees like that. Is it just black people marching? Yeah. There's a lot of white people marching with these people in solidarity about the injustice that they might only just be getting woke to or waking up to a what, what whatever reason. And I think that's kind of the point that I'm making is that if you start to say every institution is racist, also every person is racist, you know, there's microaggressions, there's everything. There is this counter argument to this thing, which is that what you then do is you water down and you almost give a pass to those institutions that have been evidentially proven that they are institutionally racist and individuals that have demonstrated direct racist behaviour. And I think that that's the kind of reaction at the moment, I think, which is gathering momentum alongside this, which is people feeling a bit kind of, whoa, a bit kind of jaded by it. Let's just try and make this as broad as possible so we can take some heat out of what this is actually about. Exactly. Yeah, and it's not about that. So I'm happy just to keep the cold from the fire. I've just got to pause that conversation for a second. Ah, the sound of silence. Without people like you chipping in, this podcast and the rest of Bristol Cable's work won't happen and will be silenced. So... We don't have corporate advertising, but we do have 2,200 people in Bristol who put in a couple of quid a month by becoming members of The Cable, which makes this new model of journalism in Bristol possible. So if you're enjoying this, and thousands of you are, please join us today. And if anything, you can pay my fee. Find out more on The Cable website. Well, let's keep that focus on education then, because one of your big projects is kind of decolonising the classroom, so to speak, with your project Cargo, Cargo Classroom. This is about, I guess, teaching the black history that you weren't taught at school. Yeah? Yeah, it's about, yeah, African history that has been omitted from your mainstream education. It's about bringing that to the forefront. This being important for that conversation we had earlier, because a more rounded, aware educated young person about who they are where they come from their own history is a better place to make better life choices and not to end up in that position when they end up engaging with the police yeah so it's not just about education it's bigger than that well so when you went for education neil and you're educated you're seeing different examples of people that achieve yeah. yeah whether it was in history or whether it was present but you're going for it predominantly most of those people look like you yeah imagine none of them look like you yeah for sure how would you feel your possibilities and life achievements would be if everything you're looking at and you're seeing greatness being presented to you, but what you don't see is a reflection of self? Do you yeah. reckon it would have any impact on what you might believe your aspirations were? Yeah, I think it does, because you can be what you see, can't you? So if you don't see... You know, I saw the same education you did, didn't I? Yeah. Because there are many people that look like they represented me did you learn about in history that contributed to... Genuinely now, probably the only one is uh, maybe a tiny, tiny little bit of Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela, a tiny, tiny bit. The the only one that sticks in my head is Othello. 
from English, uh, Italian Blackmore, isn't he? And that's that's criminal, isn't it? To think about that, it's probably the only other person. Science, physics, biology, yeah. nothing, no, no. Yeah, so great writers, great mathematicians, inventors. Yeah, there's this whole thing around wanting greater education or greater understanding and teaching of the history, for example, of Bristol and Bristol's role in the transatlantic slave trade. There's a debate about this in the black community, which is that, yes, you should do more focus on the slave trade, but other people say, well, actually, no, you should focus more because there's only 400 years of a 200,000-year civilization, And actually, by constantly only focusing on the slave trade, the slave trade, the slave trade, that also has a kind of an internalizing effect on young black children's self-esteem so you should look at all the kind of other stuff where, where do you stand on that do you, do, is it in a, or is it an either or debate or, or is it both well, i think cargo cargo for me personally was done to bring me out of this debate i did whose story back in 2007 a collection which yeah. really looked at a non-eurocentric view of the translate slave trade it was done last a bicentenary of the abolition of the slave trade 2007 and then in there, I picked up some people of positive contributions of African descent. So in there, I had Imhotep. I also had the Haitian Revolution in there. Yeah. Nanny Maroons, Mary Seacole, and Nelson Mandela, because it was like, no, we need to pull out about actually this story that we keep repeating, yeah. which is all about the enslavement and, in a sense, the pity on the African and what they didn't contribute compared to the European. Yeah. So that was pulling out of there. And then Cargo, and that's what Cargo stands for, is charting African resilience generating opportunities. It's a collection of poetry covering that four, five hundred year period, but it's yeah. looking at the achievements and accomplishments of people who are of African descent, who then contributed to the development of humanity and to the society that we are actually living in. Yeah. So it's looking at that same timeline, but it's a timeline that is empowering. And then I just feel once that's done, then we can and it's not been done enough, but it's only a start because there's a number of periods of African history that, you know, we don't go anywhere near at all. You could test me on European history. Guess what? I don't know a lot. Yeah. But I know enough to know that, that they achieved and they accomplished in their history. Yeah, had the way African history has been regurgitated. Yeah. So many, unless you're going to look for what is there, it's that it's contributed so little to society. For sure. And it's actually interconnected, isn't it? Because you can't just actually say European history and African history. It is interconnected to African history because of colonialism and you know and, and everything else before that. So, so we can't almost divorce the two. Even by doing that, it creates a, a kind of binary that isn't kind of true at the same time. So, would you say that the curriculum is institutionally racist in in the education system? Then, by definition. Yeah, by definition, it, it it just is. Yeah, you got it's like, come on, the balance, the stories, and our, our histories are recorded from a European perspective. Everybody's a hero, an explorer. A lot of the time, they're an invader, a terrorist, and a murderer. Would that not be the case in most countries, though? If you went to you went to a history class in Jamaica, or you went to a history class in Nigeria, or or Ghana, or, or, or curriculums in most countries not have a sense of kind of nationhood and they almost sort of exaggerate the achievements of individuals and people in history. You just say Jamaica and Ghana? Yeah. What, two British colonies? Yeah. What history do you think they got taught? Good question. 
You don't yeah. think they would go, but you don't think in now that they would sort of no, go. No, no, we're talking. We're talk, We're not talking now. Do you not? Do you not think that maybe in I don't know in 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 history in a class in Ghana now they would start to look back at the history more now that in effect you know I'm doing it very much now they've been decolonized. The thing is, the internet's done all that. Yeah, yeah. The internet has allowed so much information. That's like the learning has come because of the internet for so many people. Has it because um, institutions, yeah. or libraries, or places where stuff is there to come forward to say, "Let us tell you about our deeds." Yeah. Yeah, it's come out because people have independently and drawn up uh, databases and research, and it's all come out through this source. And there it is; it's all there for so many people to see. Actually, what has occurred? And it's how you view people. It's like, look, now, Mandela, Mandela, when we were young, mm. you know, yeah, the terrorist. Yeah, well, no, I remember. Yeah, Thatcher said so, didn't she? Yeah, yeah. And she, said, and she said, "Hang him." Yeah, yeah. Hang him now. This is Nelson Mandela. Everybody does now know what he was fighting for and why he was incarcerated in this. But the story that we were told here was yeah. that he's a terrorist that deserves to be hung. Yeah. So that's just that. And that's Nelson Mandela. Yeah. How biased do you think so much of this information that has been given to others is? Well, it's the history made by the victors. One could argue reality's not really being put out there, is it? I mean, you know, and not not just in the black community. You think about the the role of Churchill in, in West Bengal is a, is a recent thing, which has come home to roost about his involved with the famine, and people have started to deconstruct what they think of Winston Churchill, which has got major people's backs up. How dare you say about Churchill? He's this icon, and because they only know one piece. That's the thing. It's like they don't know yeah. of what actually occurred in other parts on the land. So on that, you, you said earlier that there is a correlation between uh, self-esteem and knowledge and behaviour to do with education. Because lots of white working class people have not been told the reality of colonialism, the reality of the role of the British Empire in history, does that mean to a degree we can almost excuse a little bit of their kind of ignorance, patriotism to stuff that might be a bit unsavoury, and dare I say a little bit of inherent racism? If you don't know, you don't know, do you? Look, for centuries, people have been told one narrative. All others were uncivilised. Yeah. The empire has gone out across the great empire and is civilising and changing the world. But they were colonies, that they were invaders that went into place. When you've seen what was there, why do you think the empire expanded into so many of these places because they got there on little scouting visits or wherever popped out. Then they came back to him and said, oh my God, have you seen how beautiful, amazing this place is? You need to come and take a look. Yeah. And then they went there and then seized all the wealth and so much information was taken, knowledge was taken. Yeah. We credit stuff to the Greeks or Romans because that's how the Latin and how this history goes back. Someone for the listeners, just draw up Imhotep. Yeah. Bring Imhotep up and see what he he gave. Yeah. So there's just been so much. If your self-esteem is, is is lowered and your sense of identity and who you are has been stripped and that puts you in a certain position and place of feeling displaced and has an impact. Equally, if you're told you're superior, you're great, you're amazing, the white man, you know, you, you, you conquered the world, great Britain, then you believe all that stuff as well. You, you then get a sort of sense of sort of superiority to, to other races, don't you, surely? Fill anybody with belief. Yeah, their belief. Yeah, but the problem is there's so much information out there telling, um, especially in the West, telling you that that isn't possible. It isn't it. But at the same time, there's loads of examples of, of people achieving and getting through. But a lot of the successful ones you see, they've done it independently. They created their own companies, and then they've achieved and excelled. 
Yeah. And often you hear people later would be talking to you when they're in a big company or institution about all the issues they suffered. And it, I got to this certain point by being quiet and suffering all this and not speaking out, you know, that I'm, I'm here, I'm, you know, now I'm saying it. And you think, rah, you're saying it now because you're in a position of security. Yeah, after suffering so much, knowing that all these other people out there weren't, and you can't say nothing for them. So I remember interviewing Bobby Reed, uh, Bristol City player, he's a Fulham name, and he'd never really got political or said anything. And then he became like the best player at City, and he was suddenly wanted to, he was speaking out about issues, about the fact that the football club had overlooked a number of people of his peers growing up in Eastern, um, spoke about the fact that there were no black coaches, they had no real traction in that community come out and threw a few kind of bombs and, and he sort of openly admitted to me off camera that he, he would never have probably said that a couple of years before but because he was he felt kind of uh stronger and more in a better position he could so when you break that down he was too fearful to come forward yeah there you go this is interesting because you're not somebody that is fearful to do that and you never have been and i would argue now you you might you might find this a bit uncomfortable, but I would argue now that you're on the front page of the Evening Post three days ago. You're doing work with Watershed with Pervasive Studio. You've had three books out. You're, you know, you were on Points West the other week. You've, you've done stuff at Radio Four with me and with other people. You now are kind of arguably, in a weird way, would you say almost almost like an, an establishment figure yourself, a, a, a big name in the city. You've got there in a different way, but you are now, aren't you? Oh no, we're just just out here doing work. Yeah, but your status in the city is like you, you haven't really stopped giving your opinion throughout that journey and you've sort of found yourself now there, haven't you? I mean, there's not many people not many people who say something and get on the front page of the city newspaper. No, it's definitely got to a place where I'm being heard. Um, how does that feel for someone who is is a bit, as we said, a bit of a lone wolf, a bit of an outsider, a bit of a maverick, a bit of a rebel, to suddenly be kind of, you know, they all want to be your friend now, don't they? Some of the recognition of what I made just feel uncomfortable. But the thing is, I've, I haven't actually changed what I've been doing since I started out as a poet about 16, 17 years ago. I'm yeah. just kind of being me going through. I'll address what I don't, what I feel is wrong. Every now and then I'll get it wrong. If I get it wrong, I'll say I got it wrong. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like it can happen to you. The thing is, I'm sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. What are you sensitive? Of course I'm sensitive. That's why I, why I write. Because you're a big man, you've got a big, big, deep voice, you know, your body language is kind of, you know, I think you probably don't see that in you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you don't. This is, this is how we have to live. This is how I have to live. This is me. But you do something, I feel it. That's what fires me. And before I'd react probably in a way that would be detrimental to myself and others. But now, yeah, physically. And like, yeah, not going to work out for you at, the, at this stage in your life, is it, Lawrence? And you feel like you're in a privileged position that you can now actually, yeah, you can advocate. I'm in a ridiculously privileged position. I'm in a ridiculous... Like I can walk around, oh, that's Laurent Sue the Poet. Oh, Laurent Sue, yeah. Guess what? When they don't know it's Laurent Sue the Poet, I still get people jumping out of my way on the pavement and people touching their purse. And so many times I can tell where your wallet is. Phone is in your inside pocket now because you've touched it when you're approaching me. Yeah. Yeah, but when it's Laurent Sue the Poet, it's like, it's so, so all these things are still there. I'm in a position. Yeah. And, and that's the black experience, isn't it? Whereby you can be successful in any area and that kind of stuff will still happen. But in the context of coming into a position of privilege or having a platform or having a kind of voice, um, one of the criticisms or one of the observations in community politics in general is when people kind of come through that journey, sometimes 
they kind of forget where they've come from or they forget the people that put them there. Is that something that you're really mindful of not trying to do? That's, to me, that's like a non-question. It's like, <laughs> my people's my people. What am I going to do? Do what? Where am I going? Yeah. Where do I want to be? I mean, this is what I mean. I'm exactly where I want to be. Yeah. From where I come from, from where my life started, I can't believe where my life is. Yeah. Say that, I suppose, is a loaded question because some of the charges to, you know, people like Marvin Reese, Asher, Craig, uh, Craig Cheney all come from relatively humble beginnings. They are the establishment in Bristol, whether they think they are or not. They are the, the political establishment. And some people think that's great. We've got white working class and black working class people in the position. That's just brilliant. And it just ends there. Other people think, well, actually, now they're in that position that they're not interested or shown as much focus on the inner city communities as or the white working class communities in the South Bristol or North Bristol as they could or should be. And that seems to be a conversation I'm having with a lot of people that feel that it's not just about getting in the room. It's about what you do when you get there. Yeah, and it's, it's like I've always been kind of people say, no, you've got to be in it to win it or you've got to be in the room to have a voice. But I'm like, why don't you just start to give some foundations and build your own house? Okay, yeah. I like that. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and just watch over time and time. It's like, oh, no, you want to see at the table. Why don't you just build your own and just leave the door open for everybody to come through? What I've seen over so much time is people keep telling me the same and investing within these spaces. But in the communities, what I'm seeing is deprivation more and more and more and more. So people say, no, but we're in it and it's going to make difference. It's going to change. We're going to do this change. And it's like, but look, just asking the community South Bristol, go North. Yeah. Asking Hartcliffe, go Lawrence Western. Yeah, just go around these communities in the city that aren't in the golden circle. And that's the counter argument, isn't it? That by sort of handpicking or people coming from those communities in leadership positions in institutions, that doesn't necessarily help people that are still left behind in those communities. I just wonder, because we've got the centre of the city, where a lot of this work goes on, meetings, decisions and people, how much time, once a lot of these people get into these positions, do they actually then engage with the communities that they came from? Or is all their time tied up being in a different space? You get different influences around different people, and then I don't know. Maybe they want to get out of that space. Maybe they want to escape from that space, and then they find, like, oh, I made it now. And it's like, whoa, I don't want to go back there. I mean, if you come from it, you know, extreme poverty, that's a kind of natural thing, isn't it? Not not to want to go back there. Yeah, maybe. I'd like to see the community that I come from. Instead of it being decimated, that's what I've lost. That's what we've lost, is the community, because it's gone. The ability to bring the community up, rather than to think, fuck me, let me just get away from that. Like, run away, run away. Like, I think in some other aspects, there's that, um, especially, say, Bristol in England, um, from other cultural groups. There's that luxury. There's lots of other communities that you can run to, yeah, that are still your culture. For me, growing up in Bristol, it didn't matter where they moved me. I'm always coming back to Eastern St. Paul's. Yeah. But I go to school, I ran away. Where did I run away to? To come and sit on the streets in St. Paul's. Go and send me another place. I'm running back to St. Paul's. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to be around where I could see reflection of self. Yeah. So it doesn't matter what I did this, where am I going to go to to be around South? Yeah. So the last thing I wanted to do was leave that space. I wanted the space to be like other people's spaces and I saw that safe. And when that community or a community makes you or supports you, 
is there a duty to give back, pay back, represent when you have a platform like you have now? Not just for you, for other people as well, but just in generally, is there a duty to do that? No, it's not. I don't even feel that it's like I do. It's just like... It just is. It's everybody I've lived with all my life and grown with. Yeah. Um, that's why, like, some of it, it's hard for me to try to, like, even answer. It's just, it's like a long question. It's like, it's like me asking you to leave all your family and loved ones. Yeah. Would you want to do that? Mm, no. My community is my family and loved ones. Yeah. And, and what's happened is that part of it, because it's St. Paul's and the East, just the whole inner area, it's like I was never separated by the M32, all the things that... I, I lived at Eastern, my, my nan's in Paul's, my auntie family's there. I always saw the whole space mm. as my community. Yeah. So if Lawrence Hugh was a politician and you had power and you had access to the purse string, God forbid, say you were the mayor of Bristol, what what, uh, what, what, what would you do? Should I give you the most honest answer I can give you? Go on. It's never been my desire. Economics and policy and politics. Yeah. I don't really know nothing about it. So would I want to take on a job like that? Nah, no way. Well, I'm a poet. That's like loads of people will put me into different, say, oh, you're this, you're that. Nah, I'm a poet. I observe, I watch, and I relay. Yeah. The thing is why I hold people to account. Yeah. If you take on a job and that's the position you're in, then, then I want to see that you do the best that you can do. I'm tired of people complying and taking positions and then moaning about the position they're in. Then why did you apply for the job then? maybe they didn't know what it was going to be like until they applied. Right. So what's next for you then, Lawrence? You're not going to stand as mayor if that was going to ask you whether you will. I'm enjoying the life choices I've made. A poet, doing poetry, I enjoy that. I know you don't like to give your hand away too much, but there's a few things with cargo that we should look forward to over the next few months. Well, we've got the cargo classroom coming up. We've got the people's platform coming out ahead. Yeah. We're just working with the University of Bristol on the Universal City, which is a digital platform for new students coming to university, which can be introduced to the city through. Yeah. I'm a storyteller. Trust me, the last year has given a lot of content to some of the stories that will be coming. It's like, this This is what I enjoy doing. And I stick with that. Do the best you can, innit? Could we end on a poem? So, so this just goes, so many things are not right. What we need to do is unite. We have to come together to win this fight, combining all our powers, strength and might. What can we do in a small group? See, that was the greatest coup. Separating, segregating and dividing us all, then telling us that our problems are small. Don't you see that many of our problems are common? What we need to do is stop looking at each other as foreign. For we are all one family. Don't let this be our destiny. The time has come for us to rise, question the system and expose their lies. Tom, man, amazing. Thanks, Lawrence. Take steady. Yeah. If you enjoyed listening to this, then do please subscribe to Bristol Unpacked, where you can hear some of the other episodes with amazing topics and fascinating, interesting characters from the city. And next week, it's a surprise, but we talk to one of the biggest voices, if not the biggest voice, in Bristol. What not to miss. Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. I'm Neil Mags, 
And a big thanks to Rosa Eaton, our audio producer, Adam Cantwell Corn, our executive producer, and Blue Dot for our music. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. And if you want to support what we're doing, join the Bristol Cable along with 2,000 others to create a new kind of media for the city.